Good morning and welcome to Crossword Online. Uh, it's really great to meet up with you again this morning and for us to be looking at God's Word together and to grow. And uh, yes, we are currently in our, um, working through the book of Samuel. Uh, as I keep on saying, we are now in season three and we are doing episode five. Uh, that is, we're looking at 1 Samuel 16 to 31, which as a main has the decline of Israel's first King Saul, as well as the rise of the great King David, uh, is being described, and especially their relationship with one another uh, is highlighted for us. And so that is what we're currently doing. But it's so good to be together with you. And my prayer for today is that you will uh, grow in your understanding of how you respond uh, to God's anointed King. Uh, and that's what we find in essence is happening in this little section that we are going to look at today. So let's pray together and let's ask God to help us uh, and then we will have a look at the passage. Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, we can gather in your name. We thank you for your incredible grace in Christ Jesus towards us. We thank you that he is your anointed one. We thank you that he is the one who is the conqueror and the victor over all that uh, uh, separates us from life and life eternal. We thank you that uh, we can gather and we can read uh, the historical account of how you have brought about salvation for Israel in a particular time and how that is a pattern and a picture of the great salvation that the Lord Jesus Christ has brought for us. And we thank you that in this passage that we are reading today, we see that, uh, yes, uh, there is a response uh, that people make uh, towards uh, your Savior, your King. And uh, we pray that we may learn a little bit more about what is the appropriate response and what is the, the wonderful uh, reality of how we can respond, Lord. And thank you also that your word tells us about the, the kind of sad uh, response that we often find as well uh, as people uh, are confronted with you and confronted with your anointed. And so we pray, Lord, that you will indeed encourage us today uh, to just realize that we can surrender to you more fully. Uh, we pray that you may uh, enable us to do that uh, more wholeheartedly and completely. Uh, in the light of your greatness and in the light of your anointed king's uh, ability to save. So we ask you, Lord, speak to us, deep into our hearts, help us to evaluate ourselves, help us to evaluate uh, your son, and help us to come to the right uh, conclusion. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as I've said, we are doing Samuel. We are on 1 Samuel 18 uh, this morning. We're going to look at the first 16 verses. And uh, let's read it together and then we will have a look. So, 1 Samuel 18 verse 1. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men uh, were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul, uh, with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with trembles and lyres. And they danced, they sang. Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. 
Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but with me only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre, as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men, and David led the troops in their campaigns. In everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. That's how far we're going to go this morning. What an incredible, fascinating passage. So in this passage we see, uh, this comes after, and we've mentioned, David killed the great uh, uh, Philistine, the Goliath. Um, there was this great victory that followed from that. Um, and so now we're starting to see uh, how do you respond uh, to this young boy, warrior, brilliant uh, man. Uh, and here we find like a very interesting interplay between uh, events and uh, forward-looking, uh, kind of giving us an idea of where the story is going. Um, kind of summarize sections uh, and it's fascinating to see that basically here we find a number of responses uh, uh, to David. We find the response of Saul himself which is the major uh, section that we will be looking on. We also find the response of Jonathan the um, heir apparent and how he responds and how different he responds to David uh, who in one sense must have been a, in normal circumstances a great threat to him. And we find the response of the people a bit more uh, subdued uh, but very clear, uh, we are told a number of times that they loved David. Um, and so here we learn some of the interesting ways in which uh, people respond uh, to God's anointed. And we see, unfortunately, uh, how Saul does that. So let's have a look. We, we start. So there's an interplay in the first five verses and literally set up in the first verse uh, the difference between Saul's response to David and Jonathan. And it kind of uh, piggyback on one another and it, and it moves a, a, a around. It says here that after Saul has asked David, where are you and who are you and who's your family? And kind of get some in detail from him. Uh, we, have, we haven't heard anything of Jonathan uh, ever since chapter 14. But suddenly Jonathan is there. And maybe he was in the tent with him having the discussion. And it tells us Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved him as himself. Then verse 2 tells us something about Saul. From that day Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. Verse 3, back to uh, uh, Jonathan. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Then verse 4, uh, something further that Jonathan does. Then 5, uh, Saul now uses David because he's a great warrior and he sends him on missions and he's so successful he make, gives him a high rank. And this pleased all the people. The troops are translation said, but it really just says all the people and uh, even Saul's mighty men uh, as well. And so here you find this fascinating uh, beginning uh, between the two great men of Israel, Saul and Jonathan, uh, and how they respond to this boy warrior, brilliant uh, little man who had this great victory. So let's have a look at Saul first, because here we see 
how Saul, in one sense, unfortunately, the tragedy of Saul becomes more pronounced. So someone has helped me to understand a little bit about this. Uh, we often use the word tragedy in kind of more than one context. Uh, what we would, I would call it a, an events context. Uh, a tragedy is a very sad uh, happening. Uh, we had one recently when there was this enormous explosion in Beirut, remember? Um, that is a tragedy. A very sad thing uh, that has happened and it's irreversible um, and uh, a lot of people died and a lot of devastation and it happened at the neglect um, of some officers and some very of, uh, important officials and that is, uh, as I understand, it's still being investigated. But that is a tragedy and a very, very sad one indeed. But there's also another way in which literature often shows a tragedy. When we talk about tragedy in literary form, uh, it's about a character who has to make decisions and makes decisions. And every time he makes a decision and he makes a wrong or bad decision, it takes him a little bit further away from where he could have ended and how good things could have been. And every time he does it, it's almost like you're stepping down every time to another level uh, when you make a decision. And the real tragedy, therefore, then is, is after a number of these kinds of uh, opportunities to change your mind or to change direction, you keep on going in the same direction, further away, further away, further down from where you can be. The tragedy is, is that even when you want to change your mind, uh, you can no longer do so. It is now no longer possible to change your mind and change the consequences of your bad decisions. And that's where we see this pattern starting to develop in, in Saul's life. It, it's very tragic uh, to see that. So it starts off almost a little bit uh, un, un, unseen in one sense, because Saul does what Saul does, and Saul does what we have been told by Samuel Kings does. Uh, so Saul tells us, he's having a conversation, gets some in, uh, information about David, um, and then in verse 2 it says, and from that day on Saul kept David with him, and did not give him permission or give allow him to return home. And that's what we've seen uh, Saul, uh, Samuel said kings would do. Bad kings will take and take and take for themselves to uh, bolster themselves, to strengthen themselves, to uh, have more control. And at the end of chapter 14, we were told exactly that. Whenever Saul found a young, strong warrior, he would take him to himself and he would keep him and he would use him uh, to build his kingdom. And here, I mean, you can't blame him. He is the warrior, young man, who has slaughtered the great Goliath Philistine. And so it's almost uh, inevitable that he was going to take him and not allow him. But you see the language quite interesting. He doesn't just take him, he takes him and he doesn't allow him to go home. He doesn't give him a way home to his family. He now takes him as his own. And there is something sinister uh, in that. So you saw once David, he wants what David has. He wants what David has to be used for him. Um, that's what we actually find in the first one. Then we're going to skip verses 3 and 4 about Jonathan. We'll come back to that just now. And so after he's taken him and kept him, now Saul sends him on missions. And uh, David is successful like he is with Goliath. He's successful wherever he goes. And so David decide, uh, Saul decides, I'm going to give you a high rank among the army, which uh, really means among the, the, the warriors, which is the kind of the elite uh, army group of people. He puts him in charge of that. And that pleases everybody. And it even pleases Saul's uh, servants as well in the officers in his army as well. And so that seems like a very good idea. He keeps him, doesn't allow him to go home. He starts to use him. And David is successful on any campaign. He sends him and he puts him in charge and he's still successful. So he's not only a successful warrior, he's a successful leader. Uh, he can uh, take that step up 
and uh, lead everybody in his success. And so that is all, it uh, seems to be kind of common sense and, and wise in one sense uh, to use. And so that's where the story kind of uh, uh, looks forward to a, a thing that's happening. And then in verse 6, it reverts back to the day that after uh, David has killed Goliath in verse 6. And this is where we start to see uh, some of the inner workings of Saul's uh, unfortunate, tragic decline. And so uh, they come out, the women come out, he's just killed them. They're all singing, they're dancing, they're happy. Uh, fantastic victory that God has brought about. And it tells us that they came out to greet and meet King Saul uh, in verses 6. Uh, but in their song, a uh, very fascinating song, the song says really, and they answered one another as they were singing. So they, it seems like there were two groups of people and they were shouting the two different lines. The one group would shout, Saul has slain his thousands. And then the echo from the other side would be, and David is tens of thousands. And so uh, just under normal circumstances, uh, that is literally how Hebrew poetry works. Uh, you've got parallelism in which often the second line kind of develops uh, and uh, increases uh, the joy or the, the victory of the first line. So in the first line, a thousand, well, then the next line would be 10,000. That's the next kind of numerical uh, exclamation mark uh, in Hebrew. And so in one sense, uh, in poetry, they were just saying it's fantastic that Saul and David had a great victory. That's what the people are singing. They're excited. They're thankful. They're grateful. Um, but when your heart is uh, troubled, and when you are compromised in the inside, you don't hear things so well. And here we find uh, is where we get a little bit of more insight into the troubled heart and mind of Saul, which we've been seeing for quite some time. This is just even more uh, personal. And so Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. So he takes David, he uses David for his purposes, but then David's success and this killing of Goliath uh, now is starting to work on his nerves because David gets more recognition, according to him, even though the Hebrew poetry doesn't necessarily mean that. Uh, he is displeased. And he says, he, he reads it like he says, they have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but with him with only a thousand. And so here is the disconcertedness in Saul's own soul. He's starting to become angry he's worried and listen to the incredible question how often you can speak the truth in a time of of distress uh, without really knowing that you're saying he says what more can he get but the kingdom or what more can he get than the kingship oh what an incredible word we all know already that that's where it's going uh saul is uh, kind of terrified uh, that that is where he's going and uh, he reacts in that uh, very negative way. And then he tells us in verse 9, And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. So David's ruling was good in the eyes of the people. But David's victory becomes part of Saul keeping what we would say the evil eye on David. He is sussing him out. He doesn't trust him. He is starting to become suspicious. He is uh, he's, he's confused. He's conflicted uh, with David. He doesn't. Delight in the victory that God gives Israel through David. He sees David as a threat to his kingdom and a threat to his person. Um, and that's where we see this funny thing. When authorities clash, um, that's often when the heart of those in authority is exposed. And as David rises in prominence and in victory and in success, we see the reality of Saul's heart becoming more and more exposed. Uh, he's angry. He's bitter. He's keeping an even eye 
and uh, then we find an incident uh, that is uh, uh, shows us uh, what happens when you kind of give yourself uh, to that thing. So you see, he's made a decision to keep him for himself, to point him in the hope that he will uh, he will benefit. But David gets recognition. Saul becomes uh, disconcerted. Now he's got uh, worried about the kingdom. Now he's keeping an evil eye on him. And so as this thing accumulates, you're getting to a point where it becomes almost impossible to return. And so in verse 10 we read it. The next day an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. It rushed upon him as it rushes upon him in chapter 10. And he was prophesying. Fascinating. In his house. Um, the spirit and prophecy. Uh, very interesting uh, thing for us maybe to explore uh, when we get together tonight in more detail. Well, the, David was playing the lion. There's an interesting uh, play on the, in the woods. David was having the lion in his hand as he was playing. And Saul is having a spear in his hand. And we're going to find this refrain. Saul with his spear uh, often. Spear is a sign of authority and power. He offered his spear, remember, to David. David said, no, you should have probably kept it, uh, knowing what's going to come next. Um, and so Saul thought to himself, I will pin my spear through David into the wall. And he has now got really negative reaction to David. With David's liar, as we've read in Romans chapter 16, uh, that it made him calm and uh, remove the evil spirit. Uh, giving yourself over and over and over and over to suspicion and bitterness and thoughts and evil intent in your heart. Uh, the opportunity comes and Saul tries to pin David to the wall twice. And David eludes him. Uh, David moves in front of his face, it really says. And uh, Saul can't pin him. And we're going to see this. Saul's going to have a spear in his hand a number of times. And every time uh, his spear is in his hand, it's not a good thing that's going to follow. But he is always seems to be unsuccessful in whatever he tries and does with that spear in his hand. And so we are told, uh, deliberately in verse 12, now he's moved from anger uh, to fear. Uh, the next step, verse 12, Saul was afraid of David, and we are told, because the Lord was with David, but had turned away from Saul, the original actually says. And then verse 13, funny enough, so uh, Saul turned David away from him and gave him a command over a thousand men and David led them in their campaigns. And so it seems almost like, yeah, uh, as the spirit de has departed uh, from Saul, moved away from him, turned aside, Saul now turns aside God's anointed, God's gift to him to soothe his uh, evil and his uh, broken heart. He removes God's gift also therefore from him and he turns David aside and moves further away uh, from that. Fascinating, isn't it? How he actually is himself uh, tried to first use David for his own purposes, then becomes uh, unhappy with the fact that David is so successful. Uh, now he is going to try and uh, distance himself from David. First of all, to kill him, and then he's trying to distance himself from him. And every time he appoints him, David just becomes more successful. And so we are told he makes him a commander over a thousand, and David led them in their campaigns. And in everything he did, he had great success. So every time Saul deals with David, no matter if he wants to use him for himself or not use him for himself, the only way he does is David is successful because the Lord is with his anointed, as God has promised. I will give strength to my anointed. I will give wisdom to my anointed. Because the word successful there, it's not just the normal word for success. It's the word success that is I'm successful because I'm shrewd. I've got savvy. I know how to do things in the heat of the moment. And that's really what that word is actually picking up on. 
And so he's leading them. And the more uh, Saul is trying to get rid of David and minimize his influence, the more influential David becomes. Because the Lord is with him. And it's good that the Lord is with him. Because wherever he goes, he brings about the purposes in the kingdom of God. And in this case, it was literally to fight the enemy and have victory over them. And again, we are told uh, that Saul uh, saw this great success, uh, this wise success of David, and it made him very afraid. And so he's becoming more and more. The word for investment is not just afraid. It's, it's, it's awestruck, really, is what he's saying. He is almost at uh, his dread David's success. He dreads David's uh, position. He dreads the fact that God has raising up this man uh, to replace him. Even though he's been told more than once that God is going to take the kingdom away from him, his kingdom won't last. God will appoint a better one. God will appoint something else, a, a neighbor. Um, this is all just, unfortunately, so sadly, uh, not enough for Saul to, as we would say in our terms, repent and acknowledge that he has failed and that uh, God is raising up someone else to take over and to rule uh, over everything. And so, again, we are told in verse 3, but Israel and Judah, interesting little phrase, we can pick up on that. They love David. And because he led them in their campaign. So here we are told his love was because David is the great warrior. David fights their battles. David wins their battles. David is the one who is able to uh, protect them and to lead them to victory. And a good reason to love someone. And uh, to actually uh, care for someone. In our language, in our culture, love has got uh, almost become one-track minded. Love is very different. I love my wife versus I love my car or I love sport. Uh, in, intuitively, instinctively, we know that that love has got a slightly different nuance in each of the contexts. Um, and here we are told that they love David and that because he is their leader and he is the one who is doing exactly what the king was supposed to do. Saul has failed time and time again. David is time and time and time again successful. And their reaction is right, isn't it? It is the actual love for him. But Saul, who is the greatest authority, is turning away. And it's tragic. And we're going to see this tragedy unfold more and more and more and more until it comes to a point where there is no more return. But the pattern is set. Um, and this kind of conflict between Saul and David is going to develop. And people are going to love David more, even though that is also going to change in the future. But let's go back to if that's the wrong way to react to God's anointed one being victorious to win all the battles that is really important to win. Uh, if it's the right, the wrong response to become, to want to use him, to want to benefit from him, to want to control him, to want to, uh, to despise the fact that he's more successful, to be afraid uh, and to literally turn away, make sure he's not around. That's the wrong response. And uh, that's fascinating because we find very similar response uh, to Jesus in the New Testament. The Pharisees, the leaders of Israel, uh, the Sadducees, um, they had the same response. They came, they listened, they were impressed uh, then they became afraid, then they became worried, and uh, then they started to plot to kill him, uh, kill Jesus, because they were not ready to admit that they have failed and God has raised up someone else uh, more able to bring about victory and life and goodness uh, for his people. And so here you find this massive conflict uh, between people, often in leadership, uh, about submitting 
uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. But this is where Jonathan stands out, and this is my heart's prayer and desire, and uh, I almost want to say I, I'm sure most of you uh, respond uh, to God's anointed uh, king, God's victory uh, one uh, in this way. And we are told that uh, Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved him as himself in verse 1 and then in verse 3 again. And he made a covenant, he cut a covenant with David because he loved him. Um, and again, strong language, isn't it? He loved him as himself. He loved him as his own soul. Uh, and the word there became one in spirit is a, is a fascinating word because the word can mean to conspire. It's often used in political contexts where people conspire, their hearts are inter intertwined, integrated uh, to such a degree that from now on uh, they, they will think the same and they will plot the same and they will plan the same and they want to bring about a, a great uh, reality. That's often what the word is used. And that's exactly what is happening here. Uh, he is knit together, some translation says. He conspires. His heart conspires. He is so fascinated by David. Donathan, the only group soldier really in Israel you remember chapter 14 he goes out with his armor bearer and they attack and they uh, they cause the first little uh, victory over the Philistines and it's all ascribed to him but Saul gets all the glory this time and somebody else wins the victory David and Saul doesn't get all the glory David gets more glory and so here you find that Jonathan is saying this is the man this is the man that I want to throw my lot in with I want to throw my heart in with him. I want to throw my mind and my entire being in with him. I want to conspire with him. It's a kind of a fascinating word, isn't it? Uh, it's almost like there's more strength in it. I want to plan and think and dream and, and, and work out how I can be one with this man. And because I love him. Because he is the one that I see and trust and rejoice in his victory. And his victory is for me. I benefit from his victory. Oh, how could I be closer to him? That sounds really amazing, isn't it? That's what God wants us ultimately to respond to his anointed son, Jesus Christ. And then in verse 3, it says, Jonathan made a covenant. You remember, Jonathan, at this stage, he, he was quite a bit old. He's the oldest son of Saul. Some people have worked it out. I don't know how they were. But he must have been over around about 30 or even over, over 30 by this stage. And here he comes as a big senior man. And he comes and he initiates to make a covenant with David. And we're going to see that covenant uh, re, uh, kind of picked up a number of times in the future. And it's going to be a fantastic thing. He says, I am, my heart is conspired with you. And so I'm putting it into a formal statement. Uh, I'm going to love you. And I love you. And I want to work you. And I want you to win. I want you to be everything. And if you think that's not quite true, then verse 4 is probably the verse that just tells you what love for a king, for God's king looks like. It says, Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. Now, that is fantastic, isn't it? The tunic, and we're going to come back to that tunic, the, uh, the, 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 the robe. Uh, there was a robe has been playing a little role all along uh, in, in Samuel. Uh, uh, Samuel's mom gave him little robes every year and she brought it to him to cover him and to, and to protect him. I remember uh, that uh, when Saul sinned and Samuel walked away, he grabbed one of Samuel's robes and he tore it. And Samuel said to him, as you've torn this robe, so God will tear the kingdom out of your hand, out of your grasp. Um, and so here, as, Dave, uh, as Jonathan takes his robe, his kingly robe, his uh, heir apparent robe, and he almost makes David his king. He says to him, you wear the robe of royalty. You are the king. I bow before you. It's almost like worship, isn't it? I mean, it's almost inappropriate uh, to do that because David is just a man. Uh, but that's what he's doing. He's 
giving him his robe. He says, you're the king. And he gives him his tunic and he gives him his sword and his bow and his belt. And he says, you are my king. You are my... All that I have, I give to you. I surrender myself entirely. I make myself entirely vulnerable to you. And I bring all that I have to you so that you may be more successful in your endeavors to be the one that God has raised up to rule. So here, Jonathan, whether he fully understood what he was doing, says, I'm not going to be king. I don't want to be king. I want you to be king. That is the right response, isn't it, to God's anointed king. Incredible uh, contrast that there is between him, who is in one sense to lose the most because he's never going to be king, and Saul, who is king and has been told you're not going to make it, you're not going to get it because you have rejected God, not listened to the voice of the the voice of the word of the Lord. Uh, and Saul knows all of these things. Does we don't know how much Jonathan knows about this, and Jonathan says. This is it. I have found the one that I can knit my heart and my life and my privilege and everything I possess to. And I give it to him. And I want him, you to rule over me forever. Now we know, and we've been saying it all along, Jesus Christ is the ultimate greater David. He is the one who comes and fights God's uh, war for him. He is the one that actually comes and saves mankind from their greatest dangers, the greatest terrors that a person can face. And Jesus Christ, as I often say, I use a kind of a bit of a slang, and it, uh, is to say that he came to save us from the, from the big five. And the big five is God's absolute anger at sin, God's wrath at sin. Jesus came to save us from the wrath of God. That's our first problem in because we have sinned. Secondly, Jesus came to save us from the rule of Satan, Goliath, with his mess and his scales, uh, the great serpent. Jesus came to save us from the great liar, the serpent. Uh, he is a great victory because he takes away the wrath of God. He takes away the reality of Satan and his rule. He takes away the reality, the penalty and the power and the presence of sin. Jesus comes and takes away uh, the law that makes us aware of our failure and condemns us. He comes and fulfills all of that. And ultimately Jesus comes and has victory over the other great enemy, equally death. And so Jesus Christ comes and he's the one who brings about the purposes of God by conquering the enemies and the problems and the powers that stands between us and life and eternal life. That's what Jesus Christ comes to do. And so the question is, how do you respond to that? What is your response? Does it terrify you? Do you want to use all that power for your benefit? Do you want to try and control it? Do you hope that you will gain something because of what he's done? Or do you, like Jonathan, say, my heart is absolutely conspiring and knit, knit, being knit together to his heart. And I make the covenant that he will be my king. And I give everything I have in surrender to him. I want him to prosper. I want him to become greater. I must become less. Exactly, uh, John the Baptist. Remember, the greatest man ever born of a woman, says Jesus. John the Baptist, he actually uses that refrain. He says, he must become greater and I must become less. And here's the fascinating thing. When you notice and know and come to know God's king and you 
you surrender to Him, that's when you gain the most. When you submit your life to this one who gives everything and has conquered every enemy and is the only one who has done that, when you rejoice in that and give yourself to Him, that's when you actually gain the most. That's when you gain life and eternal life by acknowledging that He is the one who gives it. And that's what this passage kind of sets us up. The right response to God's anointed King is to come and to hand over our lives to Him. To knit our hearts together with His. To give ourselves to Him. To make ourselves available. And to submit to Him. Which is a great thing to submit to a victorious King like the Lord Jesus Christ. So I hope today you've kind of become aware that you'll find that many people uh, will be impressed with Jesus. They will be fascinated maybe with Him for a while. But they will not necessarily understand the greatness of who he is and what he's done. And there's the invitation. Come and see and look. And see who is there that has got such great victory. Because the Lord is with him. We are told three times the Lord is with David. The Lord is with his king. The Lord was with the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord is the one who brought Jesus Christ to be so victorious. In his humble obedience. In his humble death. In his glorious resurrection. In his pouring out of the Spirit. And in one day in his coming again. So here's the incredible uh, section. That helps us to understand. Kind of, so the question is. Do you love Jesus? Is your love the kind of love. As expressed in the kinds of words and deeds. Of Jonathan. Here I am. I'm yours. Everything I have is yours. I want you to be the Lord of my life. I want you to rule over me. I want to follow you. And I want to be knit together with you. And I want to conspire in one sense with you for your kingdom. And we're going to see how some of that details work out later um, in the story. But isn't that amazing? God is calling us to receive Jesus Christ. By admitting that he is the saviour, which we know in ourselves we're not. And yet we find so often in our own hearts and when we see look around us so many that does not actually understand the glory and the wonder of the Lord Jesus Christ. So may you know where your own heart is in relation to Jesus Christ. Do you love him? Very personal question, isn't it? Very interesting question. Do you love him? Are you surrendering anything that you have and you think belongs to you, to Him? Everything we have has been given to us by Him. He has given on top of that for us freedom from wrath, freedom from sin, freedom from law, freedom from death, freedom from Satan. What is there that's too difficult to hand over to Him, into His good hands, so that He may be your king, the one who will rule over you and over me. Good thing to think about, isn't it? To contemplate and to ask God, Lord, show me, where is my heart? Do I love your king? Do I love the Lord Jesus Christ? What is it about him that I love? Is my heart connected and connected together with him? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that in the that you've given us your son. 
Yes, Lord, it does. Uh, it's an amazing thing. Um, for so many years, I myself didn't get it, didn't hear it, didn't understand it, didn't want to. I was sometimes angry with you because why are you not using your power for the way I think you should use it? And uh, the more I see how you have revealed your glory in your Son, giving us ultimate salvation, um, the more I'm ready, Lord, to surrender to you. So I thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for his love. I thank you for his power. I thank you for his humility. I thank you for his kindness. And I thank you for his grace. I thank you for his truth. And yes, Lord, there's no one else that I would love to conspire with more than the Lord Jesus Christ. So won't you help me to conspire every day with you? Won't you help each one of us to assess who is it that we would really want to conspire with? Whose kingdom are we conspiring to will be the greatest? Ours? Our country's? For the Lord Jesus Christ. So thank you, Lord, that we can become aware that you do call us to respond. You do give us today to evaluate where our response is. Thank you that you, your grace is sufficient today for us to respond. It would help us to be, think carefully about how we respond, because every time we respond, uh, we either come one step and one step closer to you, or we may put ourselves to go one step further down and away from you as we see Saul has done. So thank you that your word is really real. It's not artificial. Um, some people respond to you rightly and some don't. And the consequences is incredibly different. So yes, Lord, thank you. Thank you that we can respond. We ask for your grace. We ask for your mercy. And we want to praise you that your king is indeed the king of all kings and the one who deserves all our allegiance and the one to whom we can gladly surrender our lives and all our security and all our privilege. And we want to worship you and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we do it in his name. Amen. So thank you very much for listening this morning. I hope that your heart has been stirred to evaluate yourself in the light of God's word and to no matter what you find, uh, to turn because God is always greater and more gracious and more truthful than what you can imagine. So may you find uh, his kindness today and I pray that you will walk in it and rejoice in it and conspire with him uh, for his kingdom. Thank you for listening and uh, have a good week and uh, enjoy the bigger freedom we have in lockdown too and uh, hopefully soon we will be able to meet face to face again. Have a great day in Jesus' name. Bye-bye.